Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Sunny day, cool outside, pretty awesome if you ask me. And we get to come together and, and study God's Word and pour over the Bible. That is, that is just amazing. You know, we're, we're so blessed by the opportunity to be able to do this. I, I think we take it for granted. The Bible is so readily available to us. I mean, um, obviously you can download them onto your phone. There are websites where you've got multiple translations, multiple languages, and commentaries for free even. Um, we can come together like this and... We all have own multiple Bibles. If you don't use electronics, you can go to Dollar Tree and get one for a dollar. I mean, um, and yet we have that there, and we don't always study it. Um, I showed a video to the kids of, uh, probably a couple months ago now in the teen class. It was a joking one, but it was uh, a first-century Christian meets a 21st-century Christian. And there, it was this kind of this dialogue. It was, you know, obviously it was satire and that kind of stuff, but showing the how shocked a first century Christian might be to the fact that, you mean you have all the, the Gospels and, and all the letters of Paul, man, and the person's like, you must pour over them day and night and commit them to memory, because we didn't even have any of those, and the person's like, well, I do have like a verse of a day calendar, you know, and that's kind of the reality of where we're at a lot of times. We don't, myself included, don't spend the time in the Word that we should. Well, we are in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all biographies of Jesus written by those that were, you know, in his inner circle, observers, you know, historians and so on, because like Luke, you know, gathered history and stuff like that as he put it together. But each one of these gospels tell the story of Jesus from a different perspective. Um, They're not contradictory. And also, too, let me... I'm going to throw this out to you a little bit, and I don't mean any disrespect or anything. I don't think they're designed to always be put together in like a harmony either. I know uh, many um, great scholars over the years have put together what they call harmonies of the gospel. Is anybody familiar with those? What's a harmony of the gospel? Yeah, it tries to like take snippets from each one and make them chronological. You know, here's where everything fit. Now, that's great from a historical standpoint to try to comprehend where things are on the timeline because sometimes they jump around and you get kind of confused. Um, but at the same time, each one of these is designed to stand alone because the authors are trying to further a particular angle or teaching about Jesus in them. Now, they're all pointing toward the fact that he is the son of God. That is the intended purpose pretty much of all of them, right? They prove that Jesus is the son of God. Whether it be Mark, you know, when he begins with the genealogy of Jesus, uh, you know, the Son of God, and then the centurion saying, truly this man was the Son of God, or John saying, these signs have been written so that you may believe, Matthew and all the fulfillment of prophecy. They're all trying to show Jesus to be that promised Messiah, the Son of God, but they do it from a different angle, a different perspective, a different way of looking at things. And it's our job as a Bible student to try to determine and see through the eyes of that author what they are showing us about Jesus. These are not just history books like a, an encyclopedia or a, a, you know, some kind of synopsis biography on Wikipedia or something like that. It's designed to further a narrative about Jesus that we need to understand and we need to believe. The Gospel of John, he tells us why he wrote it. 
He says, he doesn't say, I wrote this so you could have a bunch of facts about Jesus. No. Why did John say he wrote his gospel? So that you may believe, right? He says, many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe and the believing we have life in his name. All these signs about Jesus, that he's, or signs from Jesus, that he's recording are designed to get us to believe. So with that as a backdrop, you can kind of filter the book through that lens, that purpose statement. So John gives us his purpose statement. Now we, as an interpreter of the Bible, filter his text through his purpose statement. That's not the Cliff Sabro purpose statement. That's John's, and he wrote the book. So we filter his book through that lens, and you start to see what he's doing. You're like, whoa. He mentions witness after witness after witness, giving testimony after testimony. He mentions, you know, these different interactions and how people um, responded to him. He mentions his miracles, his signs, and what people thought of them. And even as we get into this section, you know, today with the crucifixion, all of it is just amazing with how Jesus responded and how he acted, all designed to cause us to believe. Yeah, with that word harmony of the Gospels, yeah. I mean, because I know from a musical standpoint, if you play all the right note at the right way, it all kind of comes together. I'm not good at singing, but periodically my voice will match up with other people. And I'm like, hey, that's what it's supposed to sound like. You know, that's kind of what that word is used. Um, But all right, so John chapter, we were in chapter 19. I'm going to back up just to remind us of where we're at. But so Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested in the garden, and ultimately we're told that he was going to not let this cup pass from him. He was going to fulfill the Father's wishes. He was going to die. He is taken before the priest, and when he is before the priest, he basically says, look, I haven't done anything wrong. What's your accusation against me? And the first act of violence against Jesus we have recorded there is what? He struck. He goes, why did you strike me? You know, I didn't do anything wrong here. And then, and then he sent away to the Caiaphas, the high priest. From there, he goes on to before Pilate in the praetorium, and Pilate says, I don't have, what are the accusations against this guy? Um, You know, I I don't see anything wrong. What's going on here? And the gist of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate has to do with what charge against Jesus? What were they saying he was claiming? King. King of the Jews, right? Right? And why would that be a problem? Yeah, Caesar's king. That's a problem. No one else is supposed to be king. You can do all your little Jewish things over here. It's kind of what the Roman Empire said, but don't be usurping my authority here. And I don't want kings. I don't want riots. I don't want little armies or little factions and all that kind of stuff coming up. But Jesus, when he is asked about it by Pilate in verse 36, what does Jesus say about his kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world. We're talking a lot about kingdom living in our Sermon on the Mount lessons. We're going to be continuing that this morning. Jesus' kingdom is not defined to a particular location. Um, Jesus' kingdom is where the king's will is being done. Okay? It is rooted in heaven, found here on earth. You know, it's through us following Jesus. That's the kingdom. It's everywhere when people do what Jesus wants, to put it plainly. So Jesus says, my kingdom were not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, what would his servants be doing? Fighting. See, his servants weren't told to fight back, 
to overthrow this corrupt government that it would dare persecute Jesus? No, his kingdom's not of this realm. So he's given the opportunity to be released, but Pilate takes him before the crowds, and the crowds, instead of releasing Jesus, who do they want released? Barabbas, not Barnabas. Barnabas, good guy. Barabbas, bad guy. Easy to confuse. All these names back then sound the same. Um, which is really weird, too, because there was other guys named Jesus and Judas and John, and they, but we have a lot of people named the same thing here, too. So every kid I coach is named Aiden nowadays. Seriously. Aiden, Braden, Caden. I had another one. There's another one. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's, that's the name. So right now, you know, you have a Grandpa Frank. Imagine in, you know, 50 years, kids are going to be talking to Grandpa Aiden. It's kind of a weird perspective. But anyway, I thought that was funny. Okay. Um, Mark thinks I'm funny looking. So we go here, and Jesus is taken then after Barabbas is replaced. Pilate takes Jesus out, and he scourges him. Not a gentle whipping or lashing. It's designed to rip flesh off. It was like a cat of nine tails whip, designed to tear it and all of that. So they do that to him. And then the soldiers, we discussed this last week, they twisted together a crown of thorns, placed it on his head, put a purple robe on him, and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They're just mocking him, and they're kind of opportunists in this just to kind of jump in on the violence a little bit and abuse this Jewish guy because they probably didn't think very highly of them. Anyway, Pilate comes out again, tells the crowd, I have found no guilt in this man, but the people shout in verse 6, what? Crucify, crucify. And he says, I find no guilt in him, but the Jews say, look, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. Pilate is troubled by that statement, because now they're claiming this guy claims to be the son of God. That's scary. You don't want to get involved in killing the son of God, but at the same time, you don't want to get involved in causing a riot. You don't want to break up the peace, because Pilate's job is to keep the peace there in Judea, and if there's a riot going on on his hands, he's going to be in trouble with his bosses. So all this is going on. And then Pilate, in verse 13, it says, When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place of the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the last day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That last line is where we left off last week in verse 15, which I find to be very troubling. Because it's almost like they're just, they claimed religious rightness in what they were doing initially, right? Jesus is violating the Sabbath. Jesus is, is claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. And now, when given the opportunity to enact their wishes, which was to just eliminate the threat to their power, hey, they're claiming, we have no king but Caesar. Now, maybe if under duress, they would probably claim Caesar is king and they wanted to keep the peace or whatever, but they're just readily like, woohoo, go Caesar here, because why? Yeah, it suited them. Everybody talks a big game, but a lot of times will lose their faith or change their beliefs when it comes to getting what they want. Here they wanted Jesus killed, and hey, if they got to praise Caesar, they're going to praise Caesar. Any thoughts or comments?
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you're going to do everything right. We always follow Caesar. Hell, this guy's trying. I mean, I'm sure there's other people saying, you know, he's going to try to probably overthrow the government, you know, and all this kind of stuff like that, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, they're being very manipulative here, and they're opportunists to get their way. Um, and it's funny. Um, I was talking to Claire, my daughter, um, this week about this a little bit because um, she's been watching through that um, Chosen miniseries that I tell you guys you should watch. It's pretty cool. And um, in there, they do a pretty good job of showing the attitude of the Pharisees, and Claire goes, you know, this all seems really political. I was like, you're right. It is. It's not about these guys worried about false teaching. It's about power being taken away. It's an agenda they're trying to push. It's influence they're trying to keep, and it's all these, like, backdoor conversations over here, and, and over here, this little whispering about this, and then they get their will. Yeah, it is very political, so Claire's quite the scholar there and was correct. All right, verse 16. So then he handed him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Anybody know from history why it's called that there? Anybody remember from maybe a class you took on Bible archaeology or anything? Yeah, from my understanding, like, the dome of the hill was kind of bald, like a cranium or something like that, kind of, yeah, it looked kind of an ominous, scary place. It was called, you know, the place of the skull, and that's where they were doing this crucifixion. They crucified him, and with him on two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now, other gospels, again, Matthew, Mark, um, you know, and Luke, all record various things that happened during the crucifixion. I'm going to try to stay just in John and see what he emphasizes here. Um, although, of course, I know our mind is going to go to the other accounts that we know as well. But so he has two other men beside him. If you're just reading the Gospel of John, you're not going to know much about these men right here, but you're going to assume they're criminals, obviously. And being that the Gospel of John was written last, most likely, as a Gospel, the people reading this would have had a familiarity with that story. Two, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. So now, it's, this is where you put your charges. This is where you put what crime you're guilty of. He put Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. What an interesting accusation. Let's read a little bit. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So everybody could read it. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What do you think about that interaction there a little bit? Yeah, Don. Yeah, so this is his way he can get out what he really wanted to think or what he wanted to say. So maybe like, no, oh, this is your king, that kind of thing. What else you think? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, look, I don't care what you think anymore. I'm going to write what I'm going to write. And maybe that idea. Um, I could see also, you know, he, 
a guy claiming to be king, but could just be viewed as a wacko, but a guy who's actually trying to be king and forming an insurrection and that kind of stuff, maybe the charge would be a little bit more serious, obviously, that kind of thing too, but they didn't like it, and it's obvious they didn't like it because they didn't want another king. Yeah, Curtis. No, me neither. Uh, no, but I, I'm agree with Curtis here. It's hard to get a read on Pilate. Like, what exactly? I mean, he's not a good guy in the story, but he seems to get some things. And then, yeah, like Curtis said, maybe he's just trying to insult the Jews here too. But I, I don't know. I don't know how to read Pilate. I think there's glimmers of hope and evil in him, I guess. Yes. Good point, right? How do you get a read on any politician on what they're actually thinking? And back then, it was exactly the same. Um, I think it was Andrew a couple weeks ago mentioned that, look, here's a guy that obviously got the bad job, too. If he's designed, if he was sent to be the governor of Judea, that's not a place where a, a Roman official probably wanted to go to deal with a bunch of Jewish, you know, uprisings all the time and these people that didn't really want you there. Down, I mean, that, so he's a politician, too. Yes, Yvonne. Yeah, no, that too, because if they're, the Jews did have an uprising, he'd be in trouble for that. Yeah, Yvonne. Fear? Yeah, I think fear is a big basis of a lot of decisions he made. I, I, I don't have an easy answer to all this. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Greg brings up a, a good point for us to maybe make application of here. He is torn uh, in, in this situation about what to do and... I think maybe he sees the right thing to do, but the right thing to do is going to upset everything. So he kind of goes back to the status quo. And so often we're in those situations too where doing the right thing, being truthful is going to cause a ton of problems. So instead we make excuses and try to move different things, manipulate the situation in such a way that we don't have to actually deal with that problem. And I, I think that's kind of what Pilate's doing here, trying to find some easy way out of this to make it just all go away. Where the real thing that needed to be happened was, this guy is innocent, we should not be killing him. Now, I know God's plan's behind all this, but, um, you know, there's that there. Any other thoughts? Yes. Yeah, as we know she had, from other places, had a dream and all that about him. A lot of spooky stuff going on there. Yes. Oh, I think especially, like, with the disciples, you know what I mean? Um, like, Pilate, too, of course, you know, he didn't know exactly what was going on. But as Gene brings up, all the people then truly didn't get what was going on. I mean, you got Jesus coming on the scene, and he doesn't lay everything out, cut and dry. Here's what's going to happen, exactly what you're going to need to do. He gives them little parables, and he gives them hints over here. He says, hey, come and follow me. I want to start a kingdom. Like, woohoo, go King Jesus, and then... He's going to die. What is going on? And yeah, there's all sorts of confusion there. Yeah. Like, come on, Jesus. Tell us what we need to know, right? Yeah. He, he likes to keep things vague and ambiguous until the pre-approved or divinely ordained time, you know. So they are going to crucify him here. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. Okay, so now let's stop right there before we get into this quotation. General sense, what's going on right here with these soldiers and Jesus? What are they doing? Yeah, just dividing up his stuff. Here's an opportunity to get something. Okay, this guy's got some clothes. Oh, hey, this tunic that he's wearing, if I understand correctly, you had your outer robe and the tunic was kind of like your long underwear. Okay, um, it was covered your body and it, it would be kind of like one piece kind of thing. And they're like, well, this is quality stuff. I mean, we, we don't want to, this, we don't want to tear this for just a little souvenir. So let's gamble for it. Okay, flip four, roll the dice, cast lots, that kind of thing. And decide whose it shall be. And then it says, this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and from my clothing, they cast lots. Prophecy and how it's used, we're talking about this in Curtis's class on Wednesday night on Hebrews, which if you want to see a crash course in the various ways prophecies is used in the New Testament, Hebrews is a good book for it. But here, you have this psalm, I believe it's Psalm 22, that mentions that this, this idea of, and they casted lots from my garments. And Matthew says, by what they're doing is a fulfillment of their prophecy. So God, in his infinite wisdom, knew what was going to happen to Jesus, and he wrote about it through David. And then these guys, doing an evil thing, fulfilled the prophecy proving that Jesus was the Messiah. The sovereignty of God and how he can orchestrate things. This is why when things don't work out the way we want them to, don't freak out so much. There might be another plan at work, okay? I mean, this would not be what anybody go, oh, man, they're taking his clothes. It fulfills prophecy. Strange, isn't it? Any thoughts or comments? Yeah, do you think he is king? And this accusation over here on the, on the paper in front of the cross, yeah, it's written by this sinful man, but it's actually preaching a truth because look at this. This prophecy says that, you know, this was this guy. Other thoughts? Um, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Real quick, too, I want to back up to verse um, 24. And I don't mean this, or even verse 23, Anyway, disrespectful, but I think sometimes we don't understand this. Historically, people were crucified in the nude. So Jesus having his clothing taken off here, I know every little crucifix has him wearing like a garment because they're trying to be proper. Reality was this is designed to be completely humiliating. So they would do everything they can to defame, to humiliate, to degrade you, you know, in that way. So that's why these clothes are available is they are beating, abusing, stripping our Lord and nailing him to this cross. That's how huge this sacrifice of Jesus is. He, you know, we talk about the humiliation of it that he took, you know, for our griefs and our iniquities and all that. 
Think about that here, uh, of, especially of, of a, a Jewish man, even the human standpoint of that. That shows how serious this was. But while he's on that cross, going through all of this, here you have standing by the cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Some of his closest followers, the people that were there with him early on in his ministry to the cross were women. Okay, Not all the disciples were there. Peter's denying him three times previously here, but his mom, his mom's sister and Mary Magdalene, they're, they're here with Jesus at the cross. My mom has always brought up to me, notice his mom was there, she's always told me that, um, and then uses it after that, that's why you have to take care of me, because even Jesus took care of his own mother. Um, but here, notice who is there. I, I don't want to lessen that. We always think, of, well, the 12, yes, the 12 were those guys, but there was other quote-unquote disciples, and a lot of them were women, and they're the ones that are there to the bitter end, standing next to the cross. They're the closest to him. They're the ones that are worried the most, it seems, about him, I would assume. Now, we would assume Mary here is mom, but these others too, they're just followers of their Lord, and they're there next to him at the cross. But Jesus saw them there, and he saw his mother, and he saw... Um, the disciple whom he loved. Now, we've talked about that before. Usually, it's a, we assume that's a descriptor of the Apostle John. Um, John doesn't identify himself by name in this book, uh, maybe as a way to not seem arrogant or something like that. He just kind of makes it fat. Well, that one that Jesus was really close to, that kind of thing, disciple whom he loved. And because um, Jesus kind of had, it seemed like kind of an inner circle of close friends, and, and that happens. And um, so Jesus sees his mom, and that disciple, we assume it's John, and he tells John, or tells Mary, woman, behold your son, and then he told the disciple, behold your mother. What is he telling him? Yeah, take care of her like your mom. Make my mom as if she were your mom. Jesus on the cross, and this is where you see a lot of the, the blending of deity and humanity and earthly things, and, 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 and spiritual things, and how that all works, I don't know, it's magnificent, but while Jesus is dying on the cross for the sins of all humanity, the culmination of the entire scheme of God's plan of eternal redemption, he still, before he died, took on the practical role of a son, and said, hey, hey take care of my mom. Wow. That's huge. And it says that from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. He was concerned about her and made sure that she was taken care of. And I've been bedside by lots of people, you know, over the years before they pass, and I've done lots of funerals and things like that. And um, most of the time, it's people, questions like this, making sure that everything's in order, making sure people are taken care of, making sure the loved ones are going to be okay. Jesus here did that with his own mom. Any thoughts or comments? Yes. Yeah, he had other siblings. We learn about him more later and like in Acts and stuff like that. Um, but from what I understand, like, some of his closer ones, like James, his brother, didn't believe really who he was till after the resurrection and stuff like that. 
And maybe they, weren't, maybe they weren't that good of people at the time. I don't know. I mean, come on, we all have siblings. There's some people I don't trust, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and John was there close by. The others weren't. So maybe it's an opportunity as well. But you know what? John seems to be pretty trustworthy because he did a good job writing this gospel and he, uh, the revelation and all of that. So he trusted him enough to take care of his own mom. He must have been a pretty good guy. Yeah. The rest of them were flaky at that time. That's just my assumption. Oh, yeah. That is so, it boggles my mind. Like, from the human standpoint, because we don't get any of the, like, okay, you're told by an angel that you're going to give birth to the Son of God, and then you do. But it's not like this, oh, glorious guy, it's, you're in a manger, and then it, all that kind of stuff. And then it's, well, he's a, a baby still, a baby that cries, I'm sure. And uh, Although the way in the manger song says no crying he makes. I don't know if that's theologically accurate. But anyway, you know, and he, he has to grow up. And then you have these weird interactions where he's in the temple and he's did, talking to the rabbis and saying, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? But at the same time, you're worried because your kid ran away. I mean, like all of that. How does she, and that's why, you know, she, it says, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart, right? I mean, it. She, poor woman is probably stressed and confused her entire life. She wrote a song. That's what she managed to get out about it, the Magnificat that we have, you know, in, in the other gospel. But um, it's, I don't know. I don't even know how she processes all this. And now, okay, at the miracle at Cana, at the wedding, she goes, help us here. And he goes, it's not my time. Obviously, she knew there was a time and that he had some ability, but she didn't know what that ability to do. And then he does that miracle, and now she sees him dying the poor people, as Jesus had got to be so confused, so confused about all of this. I mean, it's just a whirlwind of activity. But yeah, um, Dawn's right. We, poor Mary, and can't imagine what's going through her mind. And she had to have heard the teaching that Jesus told everybody that he was going to die. But yet she, it's also her son. And that's hard. How do you, how do you go from mother to also worshiper? I mean, all of that, the process that, huge. Mary is awesome, okay, than what she was able to do and go through. And, hey, she stuck around. Um, most likely Joseph died, you know, um, and he would have been older than her too probably. But so here you got single mom kind of still around Jesus, and it's, it's huge. All right, so um, we'll keep going. It says, after he, John took her into his own household, verse 28 after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. So a lot of things Jesus is doing is also to fulfill prophecy as we go on here. So now he says, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So they offer him this drink of the sour wine. He receives it, and right after that, he makes his final statement. It is finished. It is accomplished. My work is over, that kind of thing. And he bowed his head, and he died. Now, John here goes right into 
what's going on in the background with the day of preparation. Now, the reason for this a lot is John spends a lot of time showing us Passover feast as kind of time markers. Um, it's kind of how he lays out his, his gospel. So he's letting us know when it happened and also why there's urgency behind what is happening. So Jesus, our Lord, passes. The Jews, because it was a day of preparation, you know, preparing for the Passover, they couldn't let the bodies remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So they're trying to expedite the process of these individuals dying. So from right here, we're kind of getting a window to they didn't know that Jesus had died just yet. From my understanding, crucifixion would sometimes be a very long, drawn-out process. It was designed to be painful for a long time. It wasn't just, you know, a beheading or something like that is quick. This is designed to torture, be a spectacle for a long time, so the crowds could walk by and see the accused up there on those crosses. So, but now Passover's coming. It's Sabbath day. You can't have these guys up there on the cross. So they say, hey, let's break the legs. Because if they break the legs, they'll hang down and they will asphyxiate, I believe is how it would kind of work out. Because to breathe, you kind of have to push up. If your legs are broken, you dangle. You can't take a breath and you would die. So they go along to break the legs and they break the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him, verse 32. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So now we have testimony here to the fact that he was already dead. So just in case you hear some kind of argument, well, Jesus never actually died because the resurrection's not real. He was just in a coma or all these. A bunch of people examined what happened, okay? And the next part shows that he actually did die. Um, it says, so they come to Jesus and he's already dead. So they don't break his legs, which, skip ahead, verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken, which also makes sense with the allusions to sacrifice in the Old Testament, because lambs that were offered up as animal sacrifice couldn't be broken. They had to be pure, spotless. So Jesus was also pure in the sense that he was sinless, but he also wasn't broken. Like bones here. Then it fulfills the scripture. So then we go back up to verse 34. To how they would prepare the meat and all of that. And Jesus being that Passover lamb, the one that provides redemption, the ones that saves us from death and all of that, all those allusions are huge. Again, showing the emphasis of Jesus and the Passover. Other thoughts. So now while Jesus is there, one of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen, who, who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John is right and says, look, I'm also a witness. You know, I've been giving you witness after witness, testimony after testimony. Here's mine, an eyewitness account. He died. They came by and they pierced his side, and it says blood and water came out. You probably heard it been said before, like different um, ways medically, like what probably happened here. I don't remember the exact terms for all of it. 
I also don't want you overthinking it. Fluid came out and blood came out, okay? John is not trying to give us a, a, a medical, you know, diagnosis of a bunch of different things. But from fluid retention, it would have built up and all that. It kind of makes sense medically what happened here. At the same time, John's not a doctor, and he's not trying to, say, prove something there. Also, I heard weird things over the years with this, where people go, you know, they're talking about baptism because blood and water. I don't overthink any of that, okay? If the Bible doesn't tell us it's a symbol, don't over-symbolize things. He died, and blood came out, water came out, and John is telling you, look, I saw it with my own eyes. He actually died. He is dead. He was pierced his side, and this happened. I am a witness of it, and I am telling you the truth so that you may what? Believe. The purpose of the Gospel of John is so that you may believe. John said, I wrote this down. I saw this so that you may believe. And let me tell you other reasons why you should believe. Number one here, not a bone in him was broken, just like the Passover lamb fulfillment of prophecy. Number, or number two, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. The soldiers looked up at the one whom they stabbed in fulfillment of prophecy. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. So now you got a disciple of Jesus who's kind of been following in the shadows a bit. You know, he believes in him, but he's afraid of the Jews. He goes, look, let me take the body, and I can prepare it and all of that. Nicodemus, verse 39 who had first come to him by night. Remember when Nicodemus, way back in John chapter 3, came to Jesus and was asking him questions? Nicodemus is now there, who first came to him. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. So now I don't know where Nicodemus' faith has been through all of this. He heard from Jesus. It didn't seem he fully believed. I know he's a Pharisee. But yet, now he's here with Jesus. And he's preparing his body. And they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Couldn't have a giant funeral or anything like that. we got to hurry up and get him in the tomb because of the Sabbath. So they put him in the tomb, and they seal it up because it was the day of preparation. But I like who these individuals start showing up here after his death. you got Nicodemus. You see something here. Joseph of Arimathea comes here. And now nearby is this tomb. And they place our Lord, after he's been killed, in that tomb, thinking, it's over. This is the end. The disciples, I'm sure, thought that. Uh, all of them were confused with what was happening. And definitely those that were against him thought that they had defeated him. But next week, what we're going to see is that they didn't. The tomb was going to be found empty. We'll stop right there, but any questions or comments before we close out this morning? A lot. Yeah, be expensive. I, I think it shows that he, he's trying. You know what I mean? Here's a guy who, there's something there with Jesus. He's, I, I don't know where he's at in all of that in his faith journey, but... He wants to help, and he offers something big, for sure. Other thoughts? 
All right, well, we'll stop right there. I appreciate everybody's participation this morning. We're going to take about a 15-minute break. We'll come back in for worship time. Please greet people, make everybody feel welcome, and um, you're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.